Hi, I'm Jen, and I host the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. We all want our children to lead fulfilling lives, but it can be so hard to keep up with the latest scientific research on child development and figure out whether and how to incorporate it into our own approach to parenting. Here at Your Parenting Mojo, I do the work for you by critically examining strategies and tools related to parenting and child development that are grounded in scientific research and principles of respectful parenting. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes are released and get a free guide to seven parenting myths that we can safely leave behind, seven fewer things to worry about, subscribe to the show at yourparentingmojo.com. You can also continue the conversation about the show with other listeners in the Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group. I do hope you'll join us. and welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. I've had today's topic on my mind for a while and it came out of seeing posts in online parenting groups where mothers just seemed like they had had it with being a mother and the seemingly endless tantrums and battles over eating and negotiations over everything. And part of this line of thought took us to the parental burnout episode, but then I kept chewing it over and I thinking there must be more to it than this because not everyone experiences full-on parental burnout, but plenty of parents go through periods where they just wish parenting was different and maybe even that they hadn't had children, um, even though at the very same time they know that they love their children. So here with us today to discuss this topic of what's called maternal ambivalence is Dr. Sarah Lachance Adams, who's Florida Blue Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and Religious Studies, as well as as the director of the Florida Blue Center for Ethics at the University of North Florida. She earned her BA in Critical Social Thought at Mount Holyoke College, her master's in psychology from Seattle University, and her PhD in philosophy from the University of Oregon. She's an internationally recognized scholar and author of the book, Mad Mothers, sorry, Bad, Mad Mothers, Bad Mothers, and What a Good Mother Would Do, The Ethics of Ambivalence, and co-editor also with the very recent book with Dr. Tanya Cassidy and Susan, Dr. Susan Hogan, the brand new book, The Maternal Tug, Ambivalence, Identity, and Agency. So welcome, Dr. Lachance Adams. Thank you very much. And I also just want to give you an additional credit here. I know that you're the editor of the journal Hypatia, which is a journal of feminist philosophy. And I've been getting some negative reviews on Apple Podcasts lately <laughs> because of my explorations of topics like this. Um, I want to give a special shout out to Jeff2013, who says, I love the data and continue to watch. I assume he means listen because I can draw my own conclusions from the data. However, be careful because in some episodes there is a clear liberal or feminist bias. So Jeff, if you are watching or listening, you might want to skip to another episode today. (laughs) We're going to dig into that topic more deeply in a few weeks. But yes, today you're going to hear some liberal, some feminist bias, if you want to call it that. And I'm going to be crystal clear about that and upfront. And I think the real problem here is in thinking that data itself is unbiased because actually scientific research has this kind of cloak of objectivity where actually biases are baked into every step of the research process. It's just that we don't always see them. So with that said... Let's go ahead and discuss maternal ambivalence. And I feel like I'm talking a lot already, but there's a passage that I really love that you opened your book with <laughs> um, and that I also opened Adrian Rich's book of Woman Born. And you quote it in the maternal tug and it's a passage from her diary that was written in 1960. And I'd love to get from that passage to a definition of what maternal ambivalence is just to kind of set the scene. And so Adrian Rich says, my children cause me the most exquisite suffering of which I have any experience. It is the suffering of ambivalence, the murderous alternation between bitter resentment and raw edge nerves and blissful gratification and tenderness. Sometimes I seem to myself in my feelings towards these tiny guiltless beings, a monster of selfishness and intolerance. Their voices wear away at my nerves, their constant needs, above all the need for simplicity and patience, fill me with despair at my own failures, despair too at my fate, which is to serve a Function for which I was not fitted. And I'm weak sometimes from held in rage. There are times when I feel only death will free us from one another, when I envy the barren woman who has the luxury of her regrets but lives a life of privacy and freedom. And yet at other times I'm melted with the sense of their helplessness, charming, and quite irresistible beauty, their ability to go on loving and trusting, their staunchness and decency and unselfconsciousness. I love them, but it's in the enormity and inevitability of this love that the sufferings lie. Oh gosh, that reminds me so much of Glennon Doyle's work. (laughs) Kind of anticipates it. So can you please help us from there understand how do you see maternal ambivalence? What is it? 
think the most straightforward initial way to understand what maternal ambivalence is, as Adrian Rich describes it so heartbreakingly and beautifully, is having extreme emotional conflict in one's feelings towards one's children, feelings of intense love and sometimes intense hate, the need to be very intimate and close to one's children or one's child, but also to have a sense that one needs to get distance to have strong feelings of a desire to thrust one's child away or to run away to get as far as one can from one's child or one's children. But part of what makes this experience so beguiling is that it's not as though one's child is just a separate being. There's also this sense that of self-estrangement because mm-hmm. mothers who feel maternal ambivalence also feel very integral with who their children are, is very integral to who the mother is herself. She identifies with the child. The child is a part of her. So in this sense of struggle, she's also in a struggle with herself and who she feels she is most intimately and most deeply. And so it's not as though it's just this other person who I love, this other person who I want to push away. It's also within her own self that she struggles. Yeah. And I think a lot of parents who are listening are going to be like, yes, I hadn't, I, that hadn't even occurred to me before. And now I hear that. And it's like, yes, that is what it is. Um, I'm just thinking about some words that came up in a, a study by Dr. Alexandra Steneva. Uh, she interviewed a series of women about their experiences with this. And, and one of these women kind of contrasted these pairs of feelings this feeling of extreme loneliness, but also having the baby as her secret friend, of having concern for the baby in the middle of the night when they wake up, and yet also having violent urges towards them at the same time. And then adding on this also, this additional layer of struggle with yourself. I mean, it it almost seems as though it's all just one big struggle. (laughs) Indeed, yes. And so I'm wondering about the different ways that different people experience maternal ambivalence. And and we call it maternal ambivalence because I think it's primarily studied related to people who identify as women having children. But what about gender nonconforming people and lesbian couples and parents of differently abled children, I think, go through this too. And what about fathers? How do the various different roles fit into this? Yeah, there's definitely diversity in terms of the people who experience ambivalence. There isn't as much research yet, and this is something that I really love to see more of in gender non-conforming people. However, there is plenty of research with regards to people who are differently situated socially with regards to socioeconomic status, racial status, same-sex couples, even paternal ambivalence, adoptive mothers. There is a commonality among people who are differently socially situated. Their experiences are diverse, but there does seem to be this core experience of ambivalence at the same time. Mm. And the central feature really is that all the while there is this extreme vulnerability in the person that one is taking care of. And so that, that seems to be part of what unites all of these different experiences is that you have the child who is extremely vulnerable and there's a tremendous responsibility that accompanies this. Okay. And I'm thinking about Bell Hooks's work. And she had said, had Black women voiced their own views on motherhood, it would not have been named a serious obstacle to our freedom as women. Racism, availability of jobs, lack of skills or education would have been top of the list, but not motherhood. I'm wondering, is maternal ambivalence a middle-class white phenomenon, or do you see it in other places as well? Yes, you definitely see it in other places as well. And since that writing, many Black women, American women, have written about this phenomenon. Actually, just recently, Nikisha Williams, who's also lived in Jacksonville, where I live, has written an article for Healthline on COVID-19 and the childcare crisis. And she's written about the conflict of sending one's child back to or sending one's child into childcare during this time where it feels like it's a dangerous thing to do. But at the, and loving one's child and not wanting to put them in that position, mm-hmm. but at the same time feeling the need to be able to work and to have that time to oneself. And so I think the way that I would not disagree with Bell Hooks, but add to what she is saying is that the issues of poverty and the issues of racism really exacerbate the conflicts of maternal ambivalence. That these are, from what I've seen, these issues are not it's not one over the other, which tends to be, it's not that one is more in conflict than the other. It's that 
one tends to exacerbate the other. So the problems of poverty and racism really add to the problems of maternal invisibility. Okay. And so one of the key theses of your work, I think, is around whether maternal ambivalence is necessarily a bad thing. Right. <laughs> and, and I was really interested to read your stance on this. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about that and whether, are there any conditions under which maternal ambivalence is a bad thing? And if not, why not? Yeah, absolutely. There are circumstances in which maternal ambivalence is a bad thing. The way that I think of it is that there are extremes of it where it becomes intolerable. So the things that exacerbate it, um, there are many things. I talked about poverty. I talked about racism. Social isolation is a real problem. When there's extreme financial vulnerability, when there is no ability to have any sort of break or any sort of social support, it can be exacerbated by gender inequality. Sometimes when couples, heterosexual couples especially, they have a child, any sort of gender inequality that had existed, or maybe there didn't exist any, sometimes when a child comes along, Mm -hmm. now you see a dramatic change in terms of how the couple relates to each other. If there's dramatic change in lifestyle for a woman after a child comes along, that can exacerbate it. If a woman lives in a culture where there's an intense romanticization of the mother-child relationship and she feels that she can't express any kind of conflicted emotion at all. And then when you have these things piling on top of each other, then you start to see it gets more and more and more intensified. The more these things compound, the less a woman is able to reflect on these emotions, think about them, share them, get relief, get that kind of distance that the feelings are telling her maybe she needs. And then and the ability to process this kind of emotion, this kind of intense emotion, that's where women and children are in a dangerous position, where that ambivalence can't be dealt with, where it can't be processed. And that's where you end up in situations where child abuse is a real uh, threat, where violence becomes a real threat where self-harm becomes a real threat. So as these factors multiply, that's where you see women aren't able to actually treat maternal ambivalence with the creative possibility that it has. So in general, I think of emotion, maternal ambivalence included, as information that needs interpretation, just like any information. You know, you said earlier that there's no such thing as unbiased. Um, I forget exactly how you put it. There's no unbiased knowledge, effectively. Yeah, yeah. Very, or even of, academic research that we think is unbiased. <laughs> that's right, exactly. I think of emotion as information, just like any information, that requires interpretation. And if we have resources to interpret that information, other people we can talk to, other ways of going about processing that information, then there are real creative possibilities there. And one of the things I talk about in Mad Mothers, Bad Mothers, what a good mother would do is a lot of the artistic products that can come out of maternal ambivalence as a way to process and think about its significance. When we have the ability to be creative and thoughtful about emotion, that's when we productive and creative things arise from it. Mm. What kind of productive and creative things are you thinking of specifically? Well, little artworks that women have done to process it. There's one artist, um, and I don't actually, I've never heard her name pronounced before, so, but it's spelled something like Yukulaymon. I can't remember how, I don't, I don't know how it's pronounced. We can look it up and spell it for the listeners in a bit. <laughs> where she goes, and uh, it's a performance art piece where she, part of the piece is that she periodically calls her baby sitter yeah. and asks if the children are okay. And she does this repetitively over and over and over again. She's away from her children doing this art piece. And in fact, part of the art piece is to call the babysitter repeatedly and ask if the children are okay. And by the way, I feel, I feel sorry for this babysitter. Hopefully they got <laughs> a little extra um, to be part of this yeah, work. It was like a thousand calls or something. Yes, right? it, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it's his performance of his guilt, very much for just being away from the children to do this art piece performed in the very art piece itself. Yeah. And something like that, I just find, I find extremely powerful a very, what I call in the book, a speculative moment, thinking of the work of, oddly enough, the 19th century philosophy, Wilhelm Georg Hegel. (laughs) Friedrich Hegel, he's got many names, but Hegel. Yeah, so things like that. So I see artistic potential, 
there's poets that I mentioned in there. There's other philosophers like Julia Kristeva who created works. Um, one of Kristeva's pieces, she has a piece that's a combination of philosophical work and then a poetic work where she goes back and forth very abruptly. And the piece is about motherhood. So she goes back and forth very abruptly between these two kinds of tones, one that's analytical in tone and the other that's poetic in tone to show how abruptly different these modes of thinking are. So there's a number of different instances that I do point to. Okay. And something really st- that stuck out to me in what you just said was the idea of guilt. Yeah. <laughs> and where that comes from. And yeah. <laughs> the idea that maybe, just maybe, this whole guilt thing and the whole ambivalence thing is a product of our culture where on one hand, women are required to be these productive citizens who contribute to the capitalist economy. And on the other hand, we're supposed to give our all to our child and mother mm-hmm. intensively. And so I'm wondering, do you see that as sort of a fundamental driver of maternal ambivalence or is, are there other factors that are more important? Yes, absolutely. You had mentioned in our previous conversation before this, neoliberalism. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the way I look at it is that we have a, a culture that very much values individual responsibility, individual perseverance, individualism in general. And when it comes to responsibility for children, they're very much viewed as the possession of the parents, the achievement of the parents, the responsibility of the parents. And there's less and less a model of collective responsibility. And I think that that in itself is pretty damaging. So when it comes to who's responsible, along with that comes who's guilty. And at this point in our culture, the mother is generally the one who's guilty when things don't go well. And if things do go well, I don't know that it's necessarily the mother who gets all the credit for it either. So. <laughs> um, but broadly speaking, the mother is the one who's guilty if things don't go well. Mm. So I think that's pretty clear. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so this idea of the good mother is, I mean, if, if listeners, if any listener who's listening brings, what is a good mother like? Maybe the, the idea that comes to mind, the culturally accepted idea, the one we see replicated in TV and movies and, you know, in, in all of our cultural publications is, you know, it's expert defined. It's something that a doctor has said that this is what a good mother is. It's a white middle class parent who is mothering intensively in a certain way to achieve a certain outcome for her child. And it kind of seems to leave everybody else by the wayside in, just in the definition itself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And not only that, as you well know, we also have to have a life of our own, you know, mm-hmm. so there's, there's that added to it for women who choose to stay home or are required to stay home. There's another added level of shame as though now their whole life revolves around their children and, and they have to feel bad about that too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's really no winning. <laughs> you, you can't possibly do it right. You can't possibly. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You feeling it right now, Jen? (laughs) Um, My daughter has been clamoring for my attention all day and I've been trying to (laughs) get the next podcast episode researched. And Uh so I would say, no, uh, I'm (laughs) I'm balancing it the best I can. And does it feel as though I'm being torn in different directions every day? Yes. Yes, it Mm -hmm. does. So one thing I want to really draw out here is the idea that women ourselves are very often the ones that police this. It's sort of like patriarchy. It's it's not just men saying, well, this is your role and this is what you're going to do. Women are just as responsible for the socialization of this idea. And and patriarchy is when we tell our boys, you know, don't cry, grow up, be a man. This isn't Mm -hmm. what boys do. You're being girly if you're crying, if you're expressing emotions. And some of the ways I've seen this play out related to this, what does it mean to be a good mother is Rachel Cusk wrote a memoir, I think it was called A Life's Work on Becoming a Mother, where she expressed a good deal of this ambivalence and the vitriol that she caught in the press was just incredible. And in groups of people, Reddit and other forums where people discuss her work. And then another way that I saw a paper describe it is through an organization called MOPS, which I think is, oh gosh, and now I'm going to forget what the, do you know what what the, what the it stands for? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a Christian run organization that has groups of parenting groups and parenting support groups as part of the church. And 
it's a very, the way the groups are run really kind of support this idea that there is an intensive way of mothering, that that is the right way, that when you're doing that work, you're doing work that matters. And so the really explicit goal, this is, this is a goal that's stated in their literature, is that the job of MOPS is to remind mothers they are doing the most important job in the world. It is particularly important for intensive mothers to receive this message so they can maintain their efforts to meet the intensive demands. And so I think it's, and this is, of course, mothers showing up to these groups and having these conversations in which they are reinforcing these narratives of what it means to be a good mother. And so we're doing this work ourselves, right, to a large extent. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) how do we get out of that bind where we're the ones that are kind of keeping ourselves in this position? That's a great question. What you're saying reminds me of when Naomi Wolf's book, Misconceptions, came out, and that was yeah. a little after 2000. And that was one of my first introductions to this issue. And I remember she went on Oprah mm-hmm. with some of the women who she interviewed in her book, mm-hmm. and the people went crazy on them too. Mm-hmm. And just said, that's, you know, how could you say that you don't love being a mother at every moment? Yeah. And I think, I mean, you're already stating the solution. You know, you have these brave women coming forward saying that they don't always love it. I had a dear friend the other day post on Facebook and actually her husband who has uh, been the primary stay-at-home parent since their son was born originally posted this story about their toddler who had just been a nightmare having tantrums, you know, the terrible threes. Don't forget about the twos. The threes (laughs) are really where it's at. And it ended in a, a moment where their son had bit her husband in a very vulnerable location Uh and it was yeah it was just like it was the nightmare scenario you know and I think even posting stories like that you know there's the cute pictures but then there's the one where my daughter I foolishly decided to take her to a a conference conference with me and Mm -hmm. she's having a tantrum on the floor of the airport and I took a picture of that and I posted it as birth control for all my childless friends you know Mm -hmm. like how do we stop doing it is by we stop doing it and we show both sides. <laughs> we show all the sides. Mm-hmm. And so for those of us who are willing to talk about it, we talk about it in spite of the fact that, you know, somebody may call us good gracious. We have a feminist agenda, you know, congratulations <laughs> to that, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> <Awesome>. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> never nice to see your five-star review status drop to a 4.8 stars for Ooh, two reviews know, right? that, uh, <laughs> that both call into question your feminist bias, but at the same time, you know, I'm kind of okay with that being the reason why it happened. I think so. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then it's kind of leading on from the idea of, of talking about it. I'm also wondering if there's this element of showing that we value maternal labor in other ways, Mm -hmm. physical support and emotional support and financial support, of which there's very little. I mean, we're basically providing unpaid labor. And actually that, I think, draws on a point that you made in in Mothers, Bad Mothers. You said, historically, men have been quite comfortably concealed their own dependency on the work of women and slaves as wealthy countries continue to conceal their dependency on nature and exploited countries. However, Mm -hmm. I think it is much more difficult to shake the dependence of others on oneself. (laughs) So is there that needed element of really recognizing this maternal labor for what it is? Absolutely. Yes. Well, and it's not just maternal labor. I think for those of us who are privileged enough to hire help, we have to remember where our labor is being subsidized as well. So, you know, are we hiring nannies? Are we hiring childcare workers? Are we hiring people to clean our homes so that we can go work and have careers? So there's always someone's labor that is probably being taken for granted right now. Mm-hmm. My spouse is on the other side of the screen sewing up a giant stuffed shark, you know. So <laughs> just the valuing of that kind of work overall, I think in general, we need to be doing that. And so in my own life, I have to constantly remind myself to not be a hypocrite about that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, to not buy the $3 dress online, you know, that somebody's making in a foreign country because I know what kind of conditions they're probably living and working in if that's, if that's what I'm buying. Yeah. So to take a bigger picture view of it, that's global, that's not just personal and think, not just thinking about my labor that's being taken for granted, but taking a bigger picture view of things. So, and also changing part of, as a philosopher, part of what concerns me is 
um, thinking about where we're putting responsibility for how we're oriented toward who has responsibility, ethically speaking, not just focusing on individuals as ethical agents, but ethical agency as something that's collective. So when a mother kills her child, when a child is discovered having been severely beaten for months, for years at a time, what happened in our community such that that occurred? Um, as you know, at the end of my book, Mad Mothers, Bad Mothers and What a Good Mother Would Do, I end with a story of a child who was discovered in Eugene, Oregon, who had lived down the street from my dissertation, one of my dissertation advisors, who had been severely beaten for years. And this woman was in, in Oregon, sentenced to the death penalty. I don't know that it was carried out. I have to follow up on that story. But the prosecutor said this was the one person who could have protected this child. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely object to that conclusion. The other people knew what was going on. Yeah. And so to say that it's the mother who's primarily responsible for the child is just wrong. There are many more people responsible for the child. And there's many more people responsible for that mother. Mm -hmm. And so we need to not just think about ethics and responsibility in this sort of dyadic mode, that there is a community that's responsible for that child, there's a community that's responsible for that mother, and not think of them as out there somewhere enacting these bad or good acts, but that there's more people involved. And a community needs to ask themselves, what did we do to participate in what went wrong or what went right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Where did the society fail this mother that she felt that that was the best course of action here? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I remember reading that anecdote in the book and 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 there was a stepfather in the home as well, wasn't there? And, mm -hmm. and who was called to account in some way, but in nowhere near as much, uh, mm -hmm. with, with as much severity as the mother. So. Right. And this child had a father that was still alive. Yeah. This child had grandparents. This yeah. child had been in public school and yeah. people had suspected something was wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yet still, yeah. On a lighter note, you started out this section by saying that your husband is sewing a stuffed shark on the other side of your screen and, yeah. <laughs> and he's wondering why you're smiling at him right now. And, and part of me is shocked that you're not multitasking and, and doing it yourself while we're talking. <laughs> he does the sewing. <laughs> um, and, and I think it also gets to the idea of gender roles. And, I, and I'm wondering if we would feel less maternal ambivalence if we had a different concept of gender roles. And, and maybe a part of that is letting go of the idea that everything has to be done our way and done perfectly. You know, mm -hmm. I, I might think, well, I could sew that shark better than my husband could, so I'd better do it. When actually, mm -hmm. does it matter if it gets done perfectly as long as the thing holds together for Halloween? Yeah. <laughs> no, it probably doesn't. And so do you see gender roles in a similar way and the kind of releasing of the need for everything to be perfect as in, an important component of this? Absolutely. I mean, there's the need to not have things be perfect. There's also the need that Sometimes as women and mothers, we need to let go of thinking that, well, okay, so you talk about this group that says, you know, being the mother is the most important. Well, how do they put it? It's the most important. Uh, act in the world or yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Like, well, is it? I mean, in some ways it is, you know, but if we don't want it, if we don't want all that pressure, we also can't take all that credit. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit of letting go there too. Mm -hmm. That has to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So, so much of this, I think, is related to what you just said is around taking the credit and the idea that, well, if the child is coming out well, if the child can say please and thank you on command, uh, or not not on command, <laughs> preferably, but, but when it's socially appropriate to do so, if the child can do all of these things that are expected, then, oh my goodness, I am a good mother. I am succeeding in this role. And, mm -hmm. and that reflects on me as much as it does on the child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. I mean, uh, there's uh, Simone de Beauvoir who wrote The Second Sex. She writes about, in that book, she writes about motherhood and she writes about devotion and the devotion of the mother and how this can be a very twisted thing and how oftentimes mother's devotion is really something that can be very awful for herself and her child because it can be a replacement for her having anything else in her life. Mm. And it can become a sort of twisted obligation for both of them mm -hmm. and, you know, a sort of martyrdom. And so we need to be on the lookout for that as well, because that can be the cause of a lot of 
trauma that can then get passed on from generation to generation. Mm. Um, and so when women don't have anything else in their lives, that which was an issue a lot, uh, to a great extent in the time and place where Simone de Beauvoir was writing, this can be very damaging as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that takes me nicely to the passage that I hope I'm saying this right, Dr. Sagashus Levingston. Did I say that right? I hope so. Okay. So she contributed and just a stunning essay. I know. There's a reason we start the book with her essay. Yeah, I figured yeah. as much actually. Yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, so anyone who wants to, who, who listens to this and thinks, oh my goodness, the maternal tug is the book that this is in. I'm, I'm just going to read this a passage tug. from mm-hmm. the middle of it. This essay is about the difficult relationship that she has with her daughter. Her daughter seems to be constantly complaining that someone's taken her stuff or eaten her food or did something to her. And her mother just curls up in bed as soon as her daughter wakes up and kind of just stays there, <laughs> hoping for no interaction until the daughter leaves the house for school. And, and she says it feels like a poltergeist is leaving the house. And so the passage that I want to read is this. I regret not touching her or getting up to ask her if she needs me to do something to ease her anxieties. I want to hug and tell her I love her and that things are going to be okay. I cannot. Something in her triggers something in me. And for my own safety, I don't reach out. In fact, she's a version of me when I was her age, awkward, insecure, and depressed, full-figured, emotional. Like me, she cries almost instantly about almost everything. She's a fighter who stands up for what she believes in and for those who she believes in. She's loud and rebellious and funny and beautiful and verbally aggressive. All the things I was at her age, all the things I believe in and promote in a girl, a woman. Yet I cannot touch my own child and embrace all of her because she reminds me too much of the girl I was at her age the girl who remained untouched for all those same reasons. I'm torn between giving her the comfort she needs and reassuring myself against my own unresolved hurts. For my own protection, I do not touch her. I do not jump out of my bed to comfort her because I cannot face the image of me that I see in her. I leave her to storm through our home as I lay in my own bed, terrified about what will happen to me if I reach out for her. My terror appears to her as resentment, a much safer, more socially acceptable emotion from a mother to a daughter. And that, I mean, that entire essay is just stunning, but that passage just cut right through me because I think it gets to the heart of one of the causes of ambivalence, which is the wounds that we ourselves carry as parents and the way that we were raised, which were perhaps caused in part by our culture and the way that our parents were raised. And then, of course, there's the additional layer that Dr. Livingston is Black. And she says she, she says in the essay, she's experienced additional traumas associated with poverty and racism. And so how much of this do you think is associated with uh, current trauma that people are facing right now, as well as intergenerational trauma? Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. I get wrapped up in that story and I was quite taken away with it. And I did not hear your question because I was... <laughs> can, you, can you say the question again? Yeah, yeah. I was so- transported. <laughs> yeah, she she does have that effect, doesn't she, in her writing? So basically, the idea that maybe some of the maternal ambivalence that we're feeling is a result of trauma that we're currently experiencing in the form of racism mm-hmm. and poverty for some people, or mm-hmm. other forms of trauma, or intergenerational trauma that's been passed down through our families. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, I was thinking about that. And I was thinking about that on the other side as well. So this isn't where you were going with it, but I was thinking that also the way we love our children can also be influenced by the trauma that we experience too. So in the ways, not just that maybe we experience trauma and it makes it difficult for us to love our children in some ways we experience trauma and it makes us give more and love more. And so I think that both things are aspects of that. Absolutely. So, you know, ambivalence is really about both of those emotions and that intensity. And so, but also just the self-doubt. Am I doing this right? And what am I reacting to? And am I really responding to what's going on now? Or am I responding to something that happened before? Mm-hmm. And just that not knowing, that not knowing of what am I responding to? And that's that, I think that gets again to the heart of what ambivalence is, is about, is not just this relationship to this other person, but a self-relation and not knowing, and just this division within oneself and not really knowing which aspect of oneself is at war with what aspect of oneself or which side to side with, and just knowing that there really isn't necessarily a correct answer, but that one has to be present with and respond to all of it in some way, achieve an integrity that doesn't deny either side. So not difficult at all then? (laughs) No, simple, easy. (laughs) 
um, yeah, and and I think the idea of the split that you introduced there, I mean, that goes back to patriarchy as well, right? This even the split between the body and the brain, and and that if I think something rationally, then I, that I'm allowed to think that, and that's valid. But if I can I even feel something below my neck? Is mm-hmm. is there any source of valid information there? is something that I think patriarchal society has denied all of us, not just women, but all of us for a very long period of time. And so we don't know how to trust ourselves. You talk about how do I reconcile this? It's almost like, but what even am I reconciling? Mm-hmm. Is it is an even macro level question, do you think? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a very helpful concept that comes from Martin Heidegger, who is by no means a feminist champion at all. <laughs> So the concept is the Findlichkeit, and it's a German word that translates, how do you find yourself? Mm. And I think that it's a very useful concept because it's not about the mind. It's not about the body. It's not about, it's all of that. It's how do you find yourself? Like it's time, it's place, it's mind, it's body. It's how do you find yourself? If you're ambivalent, you find yourself in the world in a certain orientation in a certain disposition that entails all of that. And so it's not something that asks you to just look at one of those things. Mm. So I believe I use the concept of depression or anxiety when I describe it in the book. But when you feel anxious, it's not just your mind that's anxious. You're not just thinking anxious thoughts. And your body isn't just anxious. But the world is a place that's anxious for you. And so all of these things come together. And I think that that to me is a more useful concept for thinking about it. Because as I said before, I think our emotions are information. And so to just say that it's information about me is not quite accurate. It's also information about the world I find myself in. And that's a better way, I think, for us to integrate who we are in a certain situation, in a certain given world that we're finding ourselves in. It's not that I'm this individual reacting. It's that the world is having its impact on me. And so it's not as though we're these billiard balls, you know, just getting bumped into, but that the world is not just infiltrating, but it is an active part of who I am. And I am an active part of of what it's doing to me. And so to me, it's a much more, it represents more about or, or explains more to me about how permeable we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thinking of like a fish that's actually breathing the water in and out and that we are that integrated into what's going on around us. Yeah. Yeah. And by the time this episode is released, there'll be another episode out with Heather Plett on the idea of holding space. And, and she mm-hmm. thinks a lot about boundaries and she actually thinks of them in terms of kind of like a cell wall mm-hmm. that are quite permeable. They have a, an ability to keep out some things and let mm-hmm. some things in. And that idea also reminds me of an idea in Buddhism, which is the idea that the brain isn't, or the mind isn't contained in the brain, that it extends outside of the body as well. And and I couldn't, I just could not understand that at first. And I read this example that when you write something, the thought is in your brain, but also is involved in your arm and your hand and the pen and the paper Mm -hmm. (laughs) and this whole loop that comes back to your brain again. And Mm -hmm. and when I heard that, I thought, oh yeah, now I get it. (laughs) That that the mind doesn't necessarily, it isn't completely contained in my head, but that it interacts with the world around it as well. That's right. That's right. The early French psychologist, Jean Piaget, the child developmental psychologist, he did all these wonderful interviews with children his conclusions about them notwithstanding, one of the things <laughs> the children would say is he'd say, "Where? what do you think with? And sometimes they would say, with my brain, but sometimes they would say, with my mouth or mm. my ears. Mm. And he thought, oh, too bad they don't understand you think with yes. your brain. Yes. But uh, then the, the French phenomenologist, also psychologist, Maurice Merleau-Ponty came along and said, no, 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 these children are very smart because they realize they do think with their ears and with their mouth because they think in conversation with other people. Yeah. You know, and our consciousness is, it's more places than in here. Absolutely. It's right now, my consciousness is very much with you. And it's also in this room yeah. beyond the screen, you know, and it's on the paper that I'm writing on. And it's in three dimensions and it's in time and it is far out there beyond. Just yeah. 
Cool. (laughs) (laughs) And I I love digging into this kind of stuff. Um, And so now to bring it back to the practicalities for those people who are listening and and thinking, okay, well, that's great. And now I understand that the mind is outside of the brain, but what do I do with all this information? And (laughs) self-care, I think, is is one prescription that's often offered for maternal ambivalence. And I think that in, I think this was an essay from your book that the subtext of this is warped in a variety of ways. Audre Lorde's quote often comes up here where she says, caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it's self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. But she wasn't talking about bubble baths and manicures. She was talking about, you know, Black women's survival in the face of patriarchal white racism. Mm -hmm. Um, And then secondly, this narrative has kind of been adopted by the beauty industry to sell us all kinds of stuff that we (laughs) probably don't really need. And the whole justification that is given for this self-care is if you can take care of yourself, you'll be a better parent. You'll be better able to take care of others when you come back. So you're not doing it for yourself because why would you do that? But you're doing it for others. What do you make of these kind of narratives? There's a lot there. Whenever I hear a, a Black woman quote that Audre Lorde quote, I'm like, okay, you know something I don't. Uh-huh. And I don't know that Audre Lorde's speaking to me when she says it. I feel like, you know, maybe it's not for me as a white woman. I could be wrong. So when a when a black woman says it and she relates to it, I say good. I can't necessarily relate to it. When the beauty industry says it, I curse words come to mind. Of course, I hate it. When people say, so you can be better taking care of other people, I think, well, that just came full circle. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> what, yeah, you know, that wasn't really for me, just like nothing else is supposed to be. But ultimately, for me, it just comes back to this concern with a neoliberal individualism that thinks of a person as this individual unit that is basically responsible for itself. And to the extent that it's responsible for someone else, it's this dyad. I'm responsible for you. You're responsible for me. Whereas I think of humans as far more interconnected than that. And also that maybe we need to think more about caring for caregivers and that, you know, so maybe somebody else take care of me a little bit, you know, and that's really when I get some relief as a caregiver is when another person takes care of me. And then, you know, that there's, that the care is more, that there's a wider net of care that's actually happening. Those of us who are used to taking care of others aren't, it's not that easy to just be like, okay, now I shall pause taking care of others and shall take care of me. It's kind of like, wait, what? How do I do that? Mm-hmm. Do I cut the crust off of my face? I don't know. <laughs> like, what, are you, what are you talking about? I know you don't mean a bubble bath, but what are you talking about exactly? Yeah. It's, just, it's just so oversimplified. I, just, I find that kind of... I wish I found that helpful and I know some people do, mm-hmm. but for me, it's useless advice. Mm. So then what is helpful in a world where we're so like, we just, and speaking from personal experience here, a lot of the time, I don't even know what my own need is. I can't even identify my need. So it's not like I can say to somebody, you know, this is what I need you to do. It's more like I just, something isn't right and I'm not sure. And I'm kind of crappy about it, <laughs> um, but I, I don't know how to identify what my need is. So how, how do we get from this, that phase that's sort of due to the way we've grown up and, and our habits that have we've perpetuated over a long period of time to mm-hmm. a phase where we can feel cared for some of the time mm-hmm. by others? Well, this is the part where I'm glad I don't have to pretend to be unbiased because I think to me, the solution is for people to live more communally. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the best times I've had is living with other women who understand the same thing and they can look at me and they know themselves and they're like, I know what you need. Here are some toasts with no crust. I didn't even have to ask for it. Thank you so much. You know, living with friends and who also have children and, uh, one night they make dinner. The next night I make dinner. The following night, their partner makes dinner. Mm-hmm. Where it's not, you know, it's this sense of like each individual family for themselves. Mm-hmm. To me, in my own experience, that's where I've had the most relief. Mm. So I, I struggle personally with living in a nuclear family model. I think that, and for my children, they've had fun living with other people's children as though it's like cousins together and aunts and uncles together. And to me, I'd love to live in a a village sort of model Mm -hmm. um, where there's this shared responsibility, shared fun, 
that's difficult in the societies that we live in now. It's really not structured that way. Mm-hmm. Currently, I live in an apartment complex in Jacksonville, Florida, really not set up for that kind of living. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah so I think the solutions are really not individual. The lasting solutions are collective ones. And so, you know, those are not easy. They are not easily defined. Yeah. And it's funny how much sway things like the housing stock has over this kind of thing, right? And Mm -hmm. the fact that we have a country full of houses that are single family houses and Mm -hmm. lonely people sitting in them. (laughs) Even family units that themselves, they're self-contained, but they're still lonely within that unit. And, but there's nowhere to go to have this kind of experience that you're describing. Because even just the fact that we have neighborhoods set up so that you have houses and then there's a busy street mm-hmm. in between them, right. you know, what if there was grass in between them? <laughs> Even that might be different, you know? Yes. Yeah. I, I've seen something like it, actually. I was up in Bend, Oregon earlier this year, and mm-hmm. there are a bunch of big traditional houses up there as well. But there are a few places where they're experimenting with different kinds of things and uh, quite small houses where you would probably only be able to get two on a lot, two or three, and having six or seven with a communal area in between with a bunch of barbecues scattered around in a grassy area. And I looked at it, I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. <laughs> Some of the solutions could be deceptively simple. Yeah, you know? It's not to say that you'll always get along with your neighbors, but you know, I mean... I like that idea better than the way I live right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. So I'm just kind of trying to, okay, if we, if we can't move, which you've been thinking about this stuff for a long time and you're living <laughs> in an apartment in Jacksonville and yeah, I live in a single family house. And, and if we're not in a position where we can move, I'm thinking about where can we go with this? And I found one study that, I mean, admittedly it was small. It had four participants in it <laughs> and it didn't say their race, but that usually means they're all white. And it did say they all spoke English and it was in England. So mm-hmm. um, so that's a fairly safe observation, I think. And it, it observed that as children got older, mothers increasingly found they had an, a greater sense of self-acceptance as they realized their own maternal ambivalence wasn't damaging their child. And then also as their child's getting older, they're starting to be able to balance themselves out and take on other roles that recognize their own identity and their own value in addition to their identity as being a mother. And so I'm wondering, is the real solution here to just kind of accept that this thing exists to do what we can to talk about it in the moment right now but to some extent just kind of wait it out and (laughs) have a sense of self-compassion so it doesn't end up taking us over but to know that it's going to get better i mean that's all well and good for people who get through it without child abuse and neglect and abandonment and suicide and murder and I was trying to head towards a slide. for those four people. <laughs> I'm glad it worked out for them. Um, so, so then it's, it's a combination then of societal support and the self-acceptance and knowing that, that if I can get some support here from my community, then what I'm doing is not harming my child, probably, assuming I'm not so far along the burnout curve that, that this is objectively harming my child. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if that support is there, but I'm still feeling some ambivalence, is self-acceptance a part of it or are there other elements that we need to consider? Well, for those of us who are susceptible to the rhetoric of intensive mothering, mm-hmm. I think the solution probably is, and I'm taking advice from my the, uh, commencement speaker when I graduated in 1999 from Mount Holyoke College, to do less and to not do it as well. So we can call that self-acceptance, but it's more concrete than that. Do less and don't do it as well. I think that that could be a solution. You mentioned, you know, things don't have to be perfect. I think that they, that that is a trap, as you I'm sure know, that there is no such thing as perfection and that it's actually, it's a trap. It's constraining, not just for parents, but for children as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Compassion, absolutely. I think leading with compassion for ourselves and others is always the best way to go. And I think when we're looking for solutions, not just for ourselves, but for the broader world, we have to lead with compassion. Mm. That's, a, that's always the best fallback solution in my view. 
Yeah, it seems as though I'm, I'm just thinking about the kinds of places where things like this get shared, where parents say that they're having a hard time and that if what they get back from that is compassion, rather than how dare you admit that, <laughs> that you don't always love your children every second of the day, that can only help, right? <laughs> I mean, even parents who do end up doing, you know, some things that we would say that we shouldn't do that. We can still say, like, I get why you might have done that. I mean, oftentimes it's not like they don't know that they shouldn't have done it. Yes. And we can still say, like, you know, you shouldn't have done it. I know you shouldn't have done it. I can understand why you might have done it. Mm -hmm. We can still hold those two positions at once. Mm. I know people who hit their children, and I've said, you shouldn't have done that. And I've said to their child, like, she shouldn't have done that. Mm -hmm. I know she loves you, but she shouldn't have done that. And was my friend mad at me? Yes. <laughs> Am I the one who inherits her child if she and her partner both die? Yes. Mm-hmm. So we can know what we can we can be honest with each other about what's right and wrong while still being compassionate toward each other when mm-hmm. we mess up. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, holding the two together. I like that as a conclusion that we're, yeah. we're not absolving ourselves of all responsibility for messing up, you know, but acknowledging that we are going to mess up because we're not perfect. And that when that happens, we can bring compassion to ourselves and compassion to others while yeah. we still work to not kind of intensively mother and, and be perfect, but yeah. kind of try to be the parent that our child needs. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, um, when I do mess up, it, it enables me to be even more compassionate toward others. So mm. it's not a matter of, of being perfect or not being perfect. It's what do I turn that into? Mm-hmm. You know, my own feelings of guilt and maybe even shame. Like, ugh, you know, what did I do? Ah, mm-hmm. oh, okay, I'm part of the human community again, you know. Well. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Yeah. And and what do I do with that energy and and how do I take it forward in my relationship with my child and with other parents as well? Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, thanks for for digging into the philosophical issues with us as well as helping us with some super practical tools. I'm I'm really grateful for your time. My pleasure so much. Thank you. So listeners can find the link uh, to, to the book, The Maternal Tug, Ambivalence, Identity, and Agency, as well as the references. I'll try and get those references to all the philosoph- philosophers as well that we talked about and put those up on the references page at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash maternal ambivalence. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Don't forget to subscribe to the show at yourparentingmojo.com to receive new episode notifications and the free guide to seven parenting myths that we can leave behind. And join the Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group for more respectful research-based ideas to help kids thrive and make parenting easier for you. I'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.